Hey, homegirls and homeboys, I'm Arielle. And I'm Amanda, and we're the Homicide Homegirls. Just two best friends discussing true crime cases that they can't stop obsessing over. If you're like us and your guilty pleasure is serial killer documentaries, whodunit mysteries, and procedural police shows, then you're in the right place. So buckle up, Buttercup, grab an adult beverage, and get ready, because on Wednesdays, we talk murder. do okay so let's discuss the elephant in the room that's pretty rude of you (laughs) i can't stand you (laughs) so we've been mia for a while maybe some of you noticed a lot of you noticed yeah we got messages but after you yeah after we released our last episode on ben rennick life got a little crazy for both of us full disclosure Personally, my mental health has not been the greatest for the past few months, so I called Amanda one night and, through tears, asked if we could put a pause on releasing episodes for a while because I just did not have the capacity to research and record with all, like, the noise going on in my head. And then I've just had, like, a few friendships end, like, suddenly— Um, and then my grandma, who I was super close to and was, like, my favorite person in the entire universe, passed away at the end of June— So, yeah, it's just been a really rough time for me lately. And I know Amanda has also kind of been struggling with her mental health. And she's got some things that have gone on. And she's been ball to the wall at work. But I'll let her speak to that. Burnout. The burnout. And the being spread too thin. And your plate overflowing. It's just, it sucks that it had to be that. Right. That went away. But, yeah. And, you know, to be completely honest with y'all, I didn't know that we would ever come back because at that point, life was just so hectic and I was struggling so much that I couldn't even see, like, us starting this again. But after a while, I realized how much I really missed it. So once I kind of got my head straight, um, I decided to jump back into researching. So here we are. We're back, hopefully for good, but no promises because, you know, life is a shit show. We're all exhausted. We're all struggling. We see you, but so please, you know, give us a little bit of grace. Um, we're sorry, but, you know, this is kind of just our hobby, so. Yeah, well, and when me and Ariel started this thing, we told each other and ourselves that when it started feeling like a chore mm-hmm. and it started stressing us out, mm-hmm. that we would pump the brakes on it because yeah. that's not what this was about. No, We right. don't get paid for this. This no. is a hobby. Mm-hmm. Um, right. Strange enough hobby, but, yeah. Um, you know. Right. And that's kind of what we revisited when we made the decision. Right. Yeah. Um, You know, it started getting to the point where if I wasn't researching, I felt guilty. Mm -hmm. And I don't need that. Like, I didn't need that stress. Well, well, yeah. And we beat ourselves up enough about other shit that goes on day to day. So, But uh, thank you to all our listeners who've stuck with us through all of our breaks due to holidays, floods, hurricanes. Mental health crises. Thank you for still listening. Yeah. (laughs) Thank you for still listening and loving us and coming back. We love you guys. We're happy to be back. Hopefully, we can 
you know, stay with you. And we've gotten so many tags on social media and yeah. messages, and it's been really, like, yeah, heartwarming to know that, like, people actually like us. And people noticed. Yeah, they did. Mm-hmm. They did. Um, and at first we didn't have an answer. We didn't know. Yeah. But light at the end of the tunnel. Right. Yeah. So... So now let's get to the reason everyone's really here. Today's episode. Today we're adding a new category to our repertoire. And repertoire. as you probably already know, oh, I said it wrong. No, I just oh, like the way it the rolls. French. <laughs> yeah. yeah. Um, you've probably already noticed from your podcast app, we are covering our first cult. And I am so excited. So when I was, I knew I wanted to do a cult. And we've been toying with the idea, yeah, of like adding for a that. while. I know, is it Nexium? Ne- ne- um, mm-hmm. Yeah, that ne- one Nexium. really interested me. But it was, yeah, I mean, y'all know, y'all pretty much have me and Ariel figured out mm-hmm. down to the T that she's a dissects every little detail, and mm-hmm. I'm like, well, let's just get this fucking shit over with. Yeah, <laughs> you know. Yeah, you're more of like a high level, like I'm the highlights channel. Yeah, and you're the full game. This is true. I love a good sports analogy. Right. Is that's what that, yeah. <laughs> I feel like I'm like she's the the whole game, but she's also the history of football. She's <laughs> right. Right. I'm like Troy Aikman calling a game is gonna know all the stats Madden, of all the past players. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Um, no, I I just I get so it's obsessive personality. I get so like into things and that I want to know everything. So because I want to know everything. I assume there are some people out there who probably want to know everything, but it gets to a point where I'm like, okay, you have to like cut it off at some point, or this would be six million episodes. Also, I'm gonna tell y'all now, it is four episodes. I thought the Cleveland. What did I tell you today? Welcome to Homicide Home Curls, a true crime novel podcast. <laughs> Look, were you looking for a short episode? Why well, ain't got nothing for you? Bye. Sorry. <laughs> Yeah, that's, we, I've said this, um, we've talked about this before, but anyway, so since we were covering our first cult, I was like, why don't I do the OG cult that you think of when you think of cults? That's not the one I thought of. Oh, well. You want to know which one I thought of? What? (laughs) You're going to fucking laugh at me. The following with Kevin Bacon. (laughs) That was such a good It was such a good show, and I was so mad they fucking ended it. Don't get me started. That was so good. Now I want to rewatch. Let's rewatch it. Edgar Allan Poe? Yeah. Yeah, so good. I have a book of all Edgar Allan Poe's works. I love him. Yeah. That was a good show. Yeah, it was so good. If you have not seen The Following with Kevin Bacon, go watch it. It's very bingeable. It's very good. Okay, but we we have not done this in so long, and I told Amanda today. I'm also not medicated. Huh? I'm also not yeah. medicated. I told Amanda today, I was like, I cannot wait to get on the mics tonight. And what did I say? Go off the— No, Just, you didn't say off the rails. I don't fucking know. You I said don't remember what cutting I said. up or something. Yeah, cut up. Oh, cut the fuck up. That's what I said. <laughs> so today we're going to discuss Jim Jones and the People's Temple and the Jonestown Massacre. In case you didn't know, Jim Jones led over 900 of his followers in a mass suicide in Jonestown, Guyana— in November 1978. Don't worry. We'll get into where this is geographically, even though <laughs> this shade, is not a geography shade. podcast. So see social media for um, right. <clears throat> reference pictures. Right. Geographical maps. Yes. Um, I have a question. Mm-hmm. Did he name this town or was it just ironically? No, named? he named it Jonestown. Okay. Yeah. Of course he did because he's a fucking narcissist. How, can, can I name a town? 
So technically it wasn't a town. It, it was, I'll get into like how much land they had, but it was like um, a commune, like a, like a camp encampment. And like they built stuff. And so they allowed them, I guess, to call it that. Interesting. Yeah. Okay. So this event is often referred to as the Jonestown Massacre versus the Jonestown Suicide. And we're going to, of course, talk about that later. But Oh, so, that's mm. interesting. Yeah. There's a reason. So this cult existed from approximately 1955 until 1978. But we're, I'm going to go through all of it. Um, as you all well know by now. So 23 years? Hmm? So 23 years? Mm-hmm. It I probably snowballed. Like, it wasn't that bad in the beginning, right? It didn't necessarily start out as a cult, but we'll kind of, I'm like walking you through. Like, of course you everything. Are. Of course you are. Yeah. Because, you know, brevity is not my strong suit. Um, I fell, honestly dove, really, head first down the proverbial rabbit hole with this case. I read three books. I watched several documentaries and TV shows. I listened to a lot of the recordings because, spoiler alert, they recovered recordings from Jonestown. Like, it's on recording when they, right before they all died. Like, yeah. Wow. So, um, there is, like, I combed through so many records online like I was very deep you started this before the hiatus I did I feel like I've been working on this since February or March so um I told Amanda this earlier one of my friends Emma shout out um I was talking to her about Jonestown because I just talked to people about it whatever and the other day she was like I cannot wait for this episode to come on I was like yeah because I've only been talking about it for five months Desiree said the same thing too yeah so um double shout out yeah so I drove my husband Ryan insane because I would constantly have outbursts like, oh my God, or what the ever loving fuck, or this cannot be real during my research. And he's sitting across the couch from me like, what? <laughs> so I'm sure he's going to be glad to um, wash himself yeah, to be of the Jonestown. Yeah. yeah. The other night I was like, hey, can I tell you something? He's like, is it about the podcast? <laughs> Sir, yeah. I'm going to need you to maintain your energy. Right. So, doesn't he, like, hand out business cards? And yeah, she does. Okay, so keep the inter- right. energy. Right. Yeah. So, uh, yeah, this, like I said, this is going to be four parts. Um, Brevity's not my strong suit. Oh, wait, I just said Oh. But I also feel like you cannot cover Jonestown in one episode. Like, you just can't. It Like, there's just so much out there but i will say this i am so fucking ready to stop eating sleeping and breathing jim jones like he is a sick fucker and i'm over it (laughs) one of our friends desiree was like uh i'm pretty sure i'm gonna know the color of jim jones's underwear by the time you're done with this (laughs) if he wears any yeah so let's make like alice and fall down this rabbit hole together shall we i'm not i'm not ready so, Jim was born James Warren Jones on May 13th, 1931. Time to- out. It be them J names. It, <laughs> right. To parents James Thurman Jones and Lynetta Jones. I hate that he's a fellow Taurus. Like, no. Ew. Anyway. His father was a veteran. Is he of considered the- a serial killer? No. No, because it, it would be a spree, like a spree killer because it was at one point. Because, like. A serial it's killer is over three, three or more victims with a cooling off period, I think, of two weeks. Mm-hmm. So, no. Technically, it'd be like a mass murderer. True. Okay. But. Because, you know, the 
zodiac signs, uh, of all the yeah. I know there's a few. I've never, I don't, I've never seen a Taurus. It's mainly Gemini. Scorpio. It's mainly Sagittarius and Gemini's. Sagittarius. Sagittarius with the J name. Go ahead. Mm-hmm. <laughs> or an L. Anyway, um, so his father. Wait, I meant I lost it. Oh, his father James Thurman Jones was a veteran of the Great War, World War One, where he suffered a mustard gas attack. That forced him to live on disability payments. I think it, like, basically attacked—like, mustard gas is serious. Really? Yeah, like, he couldn't barely breathe. Like, his lungs were, like, really messed up from it. Mm -hmm. So he couldn't do, like, manual labor Mm -hmm. because he would get out of breath. So—and in the 30s, what else was there to do for men, really? True. So Lynetta was much younger than James and has been described as feisty and independent. Retweet. Right. Can relate. (laughs) Hyper-independence. It's a trauma response. Yes, it is. It sure is. So, due to James's disability, Lynetta was forced to be the breadwinner. So, she took a job in a factory to support the family. Again, in the 30s? Like, her Unheard working? of. hmm But, I mean, she had to. And I think his family did help them, like, monetarily when they could. hmm But... Jim grew up in a small town... <laughs> Jim grew up in a small Indiana town named Lynn. The family were known Baptists and Quakers, but Jim never found a place within any organized religions. He regularly attended various churches in town, eager to learn rituals of each before ultimately losing interest and moving on to the next. So, like, a church buffet, I guess? Like, he was just, like, trying to see, you know, if anything resonated. I mean, I guess I could understand that. Like, I was raised in the Catholic Church, and I think it's a scam. Um, Same. Don't come for me. No. I am confirmed. I'm all Same. the way through. Mm-hmm. You're confirmed? Yeah. I didn't know that. Uh-huh. Those Monday night religion classes were ridiculous. But, um, I don't know. I just feel like they're probably the most judgmental people I've ever met in my life. Mm-hmm. My grandparents are rolling over in their graves right yeah. now. But What is it? Sunday morning, Christ- Sunday morning Catholics, Saturday night sinners? Like some of the, hey. <laughs> like some of the most judgmental people I know in are in a pew every Sunday morning. No, I know, but which which is like I don't know. And I was raised Catholic. I feel like it was I went to Catholic school, mm-hmm. not my whole time, but I did. So was my husband, and we both feel like it was kind of shoved down our throat. Yes. So when I got pregnant with Charlotte, I told my grandma I was not baptizing her, and I swear. She was, like, so upset. But then when I kind of explained it to her, she was like, okay, you know, that's your choice. I don't feel so. like I ever really, and this is so off topic, I don't feel like I ever really learned anything. Right. Like, it was studying, Bible study. Like, mm-hmm. I couldn't tell you shit about the Bible. No. It was very repetitious and sit, kneel, stand, sit, kneel, stand, eat bread, sit, kneel, stand. I mean, <laughs> right. it was a cult. Go on. Exactly. <laughs> yeah. Well, I mean, if you think about it, if you think about the aspect of cults from, like, a ritualistic type of, like, you know, like, a lot of cults have, like, rituals. Yeah. That's what religion is. Yeah. So, right. you know, I think it's Larry the Cable Guy that had, like, he made a joke about, like, the Catholic Church. He's like, up, down, up, down. We did two shots. <laughs> anyway. Yeah. So, when Jim was young, he was known for being a peculiar and somewhat morbid little boy. It's been reported that <laughs> she's, 
Are you laughing? I'm morbid. <laughs> morbid bitch. Oh, oh just wait. <laughs> just see me. Um, it's been reported that Jim would pass the time by collecting dead animals from around town and giving these animals funerals. He would place the animals in small boxes used as makeshift coffins and would even eulogize the deceased animals in front of any boys his age he could convince to watch. Stop. That's I'm sorry for laughing through that, but... <sighs> that is a very clear visualization. Right? Right. This essentially amounted to funerals for roadkill. Ooh, band name. Funerals for roadkill. <laughs> band name. Yes. <laughs> Jim eventually started performing these morbid animal funerals at recess at school, where his classmates were often forced to watch. Let me tell you, if one Was of he my... Was like, out in the playground searching for dead animals? I don't know. If one of my kids comes home and says, Mommy... Let me tell you what little Jimmy did today. He had a funeral for a dead roadkill animal in recess. I'd be at the school. We buried a raccoon at school today. Right. (laughs) What the fuck? Jimmy asked me to speak on his behalf. (laughs) (laughs) Oh, wait. I gotta make y'all laugh. So, my youngest is three. A psychopath? Yes. My youngest is three. And when my grandma passed away. Oh, God, Jesus. Y'all, we won't cut this out. No, I'm not leaving it because it's <laughs> hilarious. We stayed, We were staying at Amanda's house that weekend because her godchild had a birthday. Her other godchild had a birthday party. <laughs> one of them. Yeah, one of them. And my mom <laughs> called me that Saturday night to tell me my grandma passed away. You know, so I didn't tell the kids until we got home the next morning. You got to back up. Well, the yeah. day of the party. So we're at the party. And I don't know. I don't no, know it was why. it was before the party. Oh, Amanda and she just kept, kept saying, "Where are we going? Where are we going?" Oh yeah. And Amanda kept telling her, "We're going to hell if we don't pray." Something and my then, dad told me coming up, you know. And then of course, like Amanda's dad is agging it on at the party because well, before that she runs over to your eight year old, sissy. We going to hell. Oh yeah, yeah. <laughs> so I was like, oh my god. And I, honestly, by the time so the next day, the next the Sunday we come home. I waited till I got home so I could tell them with Ryan that, you know, my grandma passed away because they were kind of close to her. And we went to my grandpa's house, you know, like you do when somebody passes away. We walk in <laughs> and my youngest walks up to my aunt, my grandpa's, one, of, you know, one of his daughters. And the first thing she says is, grandma went to hell. <laughs> we're not. I was mortified. <laughs> You're fucking welcome. <laughs> I felt so bad when you texted me, but then at the funeral, it's everybody was laughing. I was like, oh, God. Thank Did God. I say it at the funeral? No. Oh. <laughs> your mom was like, that's your fault. Yeah. <laughs> my mom was like. <laughs> it was funny, though. My grandpa laughed about it. But anyway. Back what? to <laughs> Grandma went to hell. His odd personality. Not to mention her grandma's a fucking saint. (laughs) Yeah, she is. She really is. She is not in hell. There's no way. So Jim's odd personality did not stop with the animal funerals. He developed a habit of offering explicit facts of life lectures to his younger cousins. At that time in Lynn, everyone knew about sex, but it was like a taboo subject and was definitely never brought up in everyday conversation. But as per usual, 
Preteen Jim was never one to play by the rules or conform to what society expected of him. Instead, Jim would sit on his porch and discuss sexual intercourse ad nauseum with anyone who would listen. Looking back, this was probably a bit of foreshadowing. So he was like a porn narrator. (laughs) Oh my God. Front porch porn narrator. I'm dead. Band name. (laughs) Jesus. (laughs) When he was 14, Jim formed a Lynn baseball team. Then he created a league with other local towns nearby. Like, Like he organized this on his own at 14. Red flag. He went around to businesses and asked them to sponsor uh, the teams so that they could buy equipment. He then went to various teen boys in the area and after convincing them to join the team, created a formal schedule. He was the manager of the Lynn team, the Reds. Although he didn't have a driver's license, he still drove his team to and from games in his family's Ford Model A. Jim kept stats from the games, but not just the scores. He kept like individual stats too. And the other boys loved being able to look back and see how they'd done. This was just an early example of how Jim used his charisma and smarts to manipulate people to do what he wanted. Huh. And, like, his gift, I guess, for, like, organizing people, like, organizing things and, like, making things happen. Being a leader. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. For, you know what? You know what? Sports leader, cult leaders. <laughs> right. All the same. In high school, Jim was somewhat of an outcast. The only reason anyone paid any attention to Jim was for his penchant for conversation. His favorite two topics? Religion and sex, of course. Between Jim's junior and senior year of high school, he and his mother, Lynetta, left Lynn to move to nearby Richmond, leaving old Jim behind. They just left the dad. Bye. Following his wife and son's departure from Lynn, old Jim's already fragile health began deteriorating more rapidly. James Thurman Jones died at the age of 63 from respiratory disease in May 1951. Probably relative to the most Yeah. Although he was 63, he looked closer to 90. And, like, they said all he did was drink. Like, especially after uh, Jim and his mom left. Lynn residents did not recall seeing Lynetta or Jim at the funeral. However, Lynetta made sure to file a widow's claim for old Jim's army pension. What the fuck? Can't blame her. (laughs) (laughs) Just kidding. kidding. No, I'm not. Without help from old Jim's family since abandoning him and Lynn, Lynetta struggled to make ends meet as an assembly line worker at Perfect Circle, the piston rings manufacturer in Richmond. So Jim got a night job as a hospital orderly at Reed Memorial Hospital and graduated high school a year early at age 17. Jim Jones gained much more while working at the hospital than just medical knowledge. I bet. In 19... (laughs) Morbid bitch. In late 1948, Marceline Baldwin was a senior nursing student at Reed. Marceline was busy preparing a corpse to be taken to the morgue when she she requested... Nope. She requested the hospital send an orderly to help her. As fate would have it, the orderly was none other than 17-year-old Jim Jones. Marceline had heard about Jim's reputation for his high spirits, but while he helped Marceline prepare the corpse, he was respectful and solemn. Marceline was touched when Jim even took time out to comfort the patient's devastated family. After that, it seemed that Jim was always around on Marceline's breaks. 
Eventually, the pair started talking and took a liking to each other, and rather quickly. Jim wasted no time and started discussing marriage only months after meeting Marceline. The couple made it official and got married in Richmond on June 12, 1949, and it actually ended up being a double wedding because Marceline's sister married that got married that day as well. Which, like, I know people do that, but, like, no, that is my day. Like, I would want, like, to... I ain't sharing that with you. The fuck I ain't sharing that. I'm not even sharing with my family. What you talking right. about? So, Jim and Marceline's marriage wasn't super great from the beginning. Marceline assumed when she married Jim that he shared her belief in the God of the Bible. But Jim informed her that he didn't believe in her God because he couldn't understand how a just and loving Lord would ever allow so much misery to go on in the world. And that's why you have these com- types of conversations um, prior to natural, getting married, yeah. folks. According to the book The Road to Jonestown by Jeff Gwynn, Jim would tell his congregation in Jonestown, quote, I started devastating God. I tore that motherfucker to shreds and laid him out to rest. Marceline and I would fight and she'd cry. We were washing dishes one time and Marceline said, I love you, but don't you say anything about the Lord. I said, fuck the Lord. We ended up in a scrap and she threw a glass at me, end quote. What? Jesus. Red flags? Hi, daddy was not happy. No. <laughs> Jim Jones eventually attended Butler University in Indianapolis, Indiana, majoring in and eventually receiving a degree in education. Not education. <laughs> but despite his college degree, Jim felt drawn to something bigger, something more. He desperately wanted to make a difference. <laughs> the look you just gave me. <laughs> what? I'm just. Oh, just wait. I know. It's By 19. 19- <laughs> charismatic. That's yeah. a fucking disgusting oh, word. By 1952, Jim started attending meetings in Indianapolis regarding the positives of socialism. Soon after, Jim figured out his true calling preaching. This came about because Jim was attending a Methodist church with Marceline when the church adopted a new social platform, supporting the alleviation of poverty, the right of collective bargaining, free speech, prison reform, and social integration slash desegregation. These were all causes very important to Jim. So Jim told Marceline that he now wanted to become a Methodist minister, given the church wanted to put real socialism into practice. That's not a reason to become a minister. But anyway. Marceline was elated. She had always dreamed of being a preacher's wife. (laughs) (laughs) What? How did I know you were going to react like that? Who dreams of being a preacher's wife? Not me. But you know, I guess I never would have dreamed of being a preacher's wife because I was raised Catholic. You can't marry a fucking priest. Right, and that always made so much. You can marry a deacon, you can marry a pastor, you can marry a... I was so confused. That's fucking weird. (laughs) I married the Lord. The Lord. You married God. Oh, my God. So Jim started looking for a church that would accept him as a student pastor. Jim also started attending black churches on Sundays, and he felt at home. Jim made many new black friends and often invited them over for dinner. At those dinners, Jim would ask questions so he could understand the struggles of the black community. How did prejudice affect even the most mundane parts of their lives? In the summer of 1952, Jim was hired as a student pastor for Somerset Methodist Church in Indianapolis at age 21. Despite being so young, Jim... (laughs) Your face! (laughs) He's only 21, yes. Continue. Yeah. (laughs) What? 
I just like yeah. I had like a that's so Raven moment. Like I that's, looked up, that's like so a vision. <laughs> like what yeah. the fuck? I am painting a picture. Yes. Jim felt like he had finally found his calling in life. Jones was volunteer help, and he didn't have the freedom of speaking about what he really wanted to in his sermons. Every sermon had to be approved prior to the service by the church. The student minister position was not paid, and even with Marceline working full-time, the Joneses still needed more income. So in addition to being a student pastor, Jim took several odd jobs in an attempt to make ends meet. Soon after, Jim started attending revivals while driving within driving distance of Indianapolis, where he watched and took note of what worked and which biblical phrases or references would bring about the biggest reaction from the audience and the biggest uh, donation or, like, monetary come up. Yeah, like, not donation. Collection donations, yeah. Uh, like, you know, they pass around the Jesse Duplantis, anyone? Yep. Don't get me started on him. Jim paid special attention to the healings being performed at these revivals. The healings. Healings. He found that healings were the types of services that brought in the most money and fame. So it was, an, it was a fucking sh- a circus. Yeah. A show. Jim decided he would start healing people as a way to draw people nearer to him. Originally, he started mingling with the audience prior to his sermon. While doing this, he would listen to what congregation members were talking about amongst each other and make mental notes of small details about different members. Then he would use these details during his sermons. He would call out to members and attendants and start spouting off these small personal details that he really had no way of knowing. Right. Other than... Right. He would tell them God would intervene soon. And the crowd went like bonkers. Yeah. I think I say this later, but I'm going to say it now because it's going to fit. And I'll either say it again later. But eventually he started putting like plants in the audience. So he put one of his, like, closest, you know, uh, highest church members or whatever. His what? Recruiters. Yeah. He put her in a wheelchair. Shut the fuck up. I know where you're about to. He put her in the audience. No. Mm -hmm. Oh, wait. And then he, in the middle of his thing, he he goes and he lays his hands on her. Shut the fuck up. Uh Uh-huh. And he says, God commands you. God healed you. God wants you to stand up. And by the end of it, she's like, she stood up and then she was like running up and down the aisle. Gypsy Blanchard. (laughs) Right? Yeah. Mm hmm. But people believed it. That's fucking disgusting. Yeah. Yeah. Just taking advantage of these people, you know? And And, honestly. Well, I mean, they're fucking gullible, right? Yeah. But I mean, I feel like everybody's looking for something, you know? So hope. And the sad part was, eighty to once he like actually can actually like had his own church, which we haven't gotten there yet. But so I'm kind of skipping around. But once he had his own church, like eighty to ninety percent of his congregation was black. So he was like preying on these people, and I'll explain how later. So yeah, like I said, he moved on to healings after you know the just saying stuff that like they wouldn't know. And then eventually he would have like his his uh I guess he called him like his lieutenants or whatever like mingle with little index cards and they would like write down stuff that they learned about the people like while they were mingling mm-hmm. and give it to him so that he could like call it out. He was studying them. Yeah, you could study me. You will never graduate. 
But Healings is where he really gathered a following, but he was still working as a student pastor at Somerset while performing these revivals. Eventually, Jim Jones left Somerset Methodist to start his own church, which was his ultimate goal. In 1955, Jim created the People's Temple in Indianapolis. The temple joined the Disciples of Christ in 1960, and Jim was officially ordained as a pastor in February of 1964. According to the book Raven, written by Tim Reederman, which Tim Reederman was one of the people that was, like, that one of, like, the— what is he? He's a, a reporter. Um, He's one of the reporters that went to Jonestown when all this went down. He was there. Wow. He he wasn't in the cult, but he went like on the investigation yeah. thing. But anyway, so then he wrote the book. Um, but he says, quote, Jones had first become interested in Disciples of Christ when one of their ministers showed him newspaper articles indicating that the Indianapolis-based Disciples of Christ would not to- would tolerate all political views and that the denomination respected local autonomy. Benefits of affiliation would show themselves over the years. Chief among them was the mantle of legitimacy afforded by membership in a 1.5 to 2 million member denomination, and on the material side, an umbrella tax exemption. Membership would also provide a curtain over the temple's political drift, end quote. So— Can you dissect that? Yeah, so— So he— like I said, Jim Jones wanted to bring about socialism through his church. So he liked the Disciples of Christ because they said they would tolerate all political views. Because typically, socialism was frowned upon, especially back then. Mm-hmm. So, you know, he was he saw a newspaper article and was like, oh, they will be, you know, accepting of all political views. And when it says that— um, where is it? Oh, they respected local autonomy. Like, basically, yes, he was a member of that denomination, but they kind of just leave him alone. Like, he could run his own church how he saw fit. Mm-hmm. And, but it made him, like, kind of seem legit because that denomination, so the denomination is just like a like Catholic. So, so I guess the Disciples of Christ is just, like, a type of religion, you know? Kind of yeah, like Catholic, like Methodist, the, Baptist. The Seventh-day Adventists are right. the Latter-day Saints. right. But, so, like, the total membership of the Disciples of disciples of Christ was, like, almost 2 million, 2 million people total. So, like, when you tell people, oh, yeah, we're the people's temple, but we're a member of the Disciples of Christ, it oh, makes you seem like legit. Yeah, yeah. Got it. And the tax exemption. <laughs> because he's practicing, he's a member of the Disciples of Christ, their tax exemption status uh, flows down to him, you know, yeah. too. So, George Baker, a.k.a. Father Divine. Shut the fuck up. <laughs> I can't. He was a charismatic black preacher who founded the Universal Peace Mission Movement in the 1920s. Jim was inspired by Father Divine and made numerous trips to Harlem in the 1950s to meet with and learn from him. Father Divine's congregation was multiracial and bordered on socialist. Congregation members worked for low wages and, in some cases, no wages, and pooled what money they had, uh, pooled what money they did make to benefit the quote unquote common good of the church. Father Divine claimed that he was God and often demonstrated supernatural powers such as healing. Jim Mm -hmm. took a lot of his 
playbook, for lack of a better word, from Father Divine, who here is shocked. Yet another white man stealing a black man's idea and passing it off as his own. Like, cool. Typical. Yeah. Like, so he went there just to see, like, how things worked because that's kind of what he wanted to do with yeah. his church. Anyway, one of Jim's biggest issues with churches was that they were mostly segregated, much like damn near everything else in the 50s and 60s. Right. Jim often preached about integration, acceptance, and racial equality. This brought many African Americans into his congregation. Jim and his wife seemed to back up these beliefs in their home as well. The Joneses adopted their daughter, Agnes, who was part Native American in 1954. They then adopted two Korean children, Lou and Stephanie, in 1959. Unfortunately, tragedy would strike the Jones family not long after the adoption of Lou and Stephanie. In May 1959, there was a church group outing to the Cincinnati Zoo. A caravan of cars, including church members, set off for the zoo, with Jones leading with his children, despite it being a rainy weekend. Marceline didn't accompany her family because she was in her final weeks of pregnancy with Stephen, who was their first and only biological job. Really? Mm Mm-hmm. Pregnancy was really hard on her, and she didn't really even want to get pregnant, but but after Stephen, she didn't have any more. Okay. Um, after enjoying a day at the zoo, Stephanie rode home with another church member. Sadly, the car Stephanie was in was hit head-on by a drunk driver, and Stephanie was killed on impact. The Joneses' devastation was compounded when preparing to bury their daughter. Because Stephanie was Korean, no Indianapolis cemetery would allow her to be buried next to whites. On top of that, only a black mortician agreed to prepare Stephanie for burial. What the fuck? I hate people. (laughs) Three weeks after burying their adopted daughter, Marceline gave birth to the Joneses' first and only biological child, Stephen Gandhi Jones. After the little girl. They used an A-N spelling instead of E-N, like Stephanie. Stephanie, yeah. Mm -hmm. Marceline claimed— Gandhi, bitch. Yeah. (laughs) Marceline claimed that she had a dream about Stephanie on the rainy night of the incident. She dreamed that Stephanie was on the porch asking, Mommy, let me in. So Marceline got out of bed, brought her inside, and asked, Where's your father? Stephanie only replied, Oboke needs needs a mommy and daddy. Marceline didn't understand, so she just put Stephanie to bed, then went back to bed herself. When Jim returned home after identifying his daughter's body at the morgue following the crash to break the news to Marceline, she didn't believe him. Because she told him, No, she's asleep in her room. Because I let her in. Yeah, and they rushed in there, and of course, her bed was empty. Marceline told Jim about her dream or her vision. Following Stephanie's funeral, the Joneses contacted the adoption agency they had used out of California when they originally adopted Lou and Stephanie, and were informed that Stephanie actually had a six-year-old sister named Oboki. What the fuck? Who was still in a Korean orphanage. Wow. So the Joneses saw Marceline's vision as a sign and adopted the girl. And then they renamed her Suzanne. So they had Lou. Stephanie. The Lou, Stephanie. Stephanie that passed away. Stephen. Stephen. And, and then Suzanne. Suzanne. And then in 1961, the Joneses became the first white couple in Indianapolis to adopt a black child. A son they named James Warren Jones Jr., a.k.a. Jim Jr. Later that same year. The, so, 
Oh, the other one was Thurman, James Thurman. Yeah, the dad. Okay. Later that same year, the Joneses also adopted Timothy Glenn Tupper, a white child of a People's Temple member. A Jonestown scholar named Mary Maga told ABC News, quote, They call themselves the Rainbow Family because they wished both in their church leadership life and in their personal life to show that all people are equal before God, end quote. So while that all seems fine and dandy, yeah, Jim always preached about racial equality and, you know, he adopted children of color, but he was still low-key kind of racist. Like, all of his inner circle were white men. I'm not even surprised. Jim Jr. was quoted on Truth and Lies, Jonestown, Paradise Lost, that any time his dad would introduce him, it would always be like, quote, oh, this is my black son, end quote, or this is my adopted son, instead of, you know, this is just my son. He made a big emphasis. He wanted credit. Right. Like, he made a big emphasis on, like, oh, this is my black son. Mm -hmm. I don't like that. So, like, that makes it seem like he was using the integration or slash, like, all people are equal. It was a facade. To gain followers and build his cult. Jim has been quoted as saying, quote, integration is a more personal thing with me now. It's a question of my son's future, end quote. That's really cringe to me. Like, you should care about integration regardless of whether it personally affects you or not. Mm-hmm. Like, I don't know. I just feel like that's weird. Like, and then I wasn't... I didn't include it in here because I didn't even want to repeat it, but now I'm going to say it. He said that there he was preaching, and I've listened to it because he would, like, record all of his sermons. And he said that his son, Jim Jones, Jim Jones Jr., his black son, yeah, came home one day and said that a kid at school called him an N-word. <gasps> and he asked, you know, his dad what that meant. And I'm paraphrasing here, but Jim Jones said something about we're all— in words and like trying to like take control of it. and he's like and anybody that doesn't say you know they're an inward I'm like uh uh-uh. uh what the fuck? I don't yeah and he's saying this like in church I don't know although Jim was problematic he did do some good in society he was the head of the Indianapolis Human Relations Commission and firsthand assisted in desegregating movie theaters, restaurants, the telephone company, hospitals, and the city police department. The fact that all those things were segregated is insane to me. Yeah, I mean. Like, and that wasn't even that long ago, really. Right, when I when I experienced the Rosa Parks bus, mm-hmm. that wasn't that long ago. No. It's disgusting. Mm-hmm. Like, you think that, same thing with, like, Roe v. Wade, that's a big thing right now. Mm-hmm. That was not that fucking long ago. No, it wasn't. But they just undid 50 years of fucking precedent. Yeah. Cool. But. Cool, cool. But, like, you read about it in history and textbooks, and you're like, you don't, you think it's black and white ages, and it's Mm -hmm. not. Mm Mm-hmm. So. Jim's salary as director of the Human Relations Commission was only $7,000 a year. That is not what I meant. What? I said the black and white ages, like, not segregation. I meant, like, black and white TV, like. Oh, I didn't hear what you said. I didn't even hear. Yeah. I was like, that was Awful. You, you meant like black and white TV. Yeah, like yeah, yeah, yeah. the olden <laughs> days, right? Yeah. God, fuck me. <laughs> Jim's, Foot in mouth. Jim's salary as a director of the Human Relations Commission was only $7,000 a year, which made the Joneses raising four children difficult. Oh, no, they had more than that. Uh-uh. Lou. They had three. Lou, Suzanne, Jimmy— 
Stephen and Timmy. Tim. Oh. Or maybe at that point they hadn't adopted. I don't know. Four or five. Regardless, making $7,000 a year, it's hard to, like, raise kids. There were segregationists in Indianapolis who were committed to stopping any progress that Jim was making. Eventually, Jim was offered a job with the Indianapolis Chamber of Commerce for $25,000 a year to quit the Human Relations Commission. Despite needing the money desperately, Jim knew the desegregation work he was doing was important and he wanted to continue helping people. So it's like I struggle with it because it's like he did do some good. But he was also a fucking monster. Yeah, but the the hidden agenda. Right. The People's Temple also ran a free restaurant for the homeless as well as homes for the elderly, elderly and mentally ill. So Jim's beliefs regarding segregation in the 1960s were still pretty unpopular, especially in a city like Indianapolis, which was once the site of the Ku Klux Klan's national office. As a result, Jim and his family experienced threats and intimidation. Jim's wife, Marceline, would often be spit on as she walked through town with their multiracial family. Jim even received letters that said people were, quote, praying for Jim Jr. to die, end quote. That is beyond vile and, like, despicable. Like, people are so hateful. That's a child. Like, how are people that hateful? That's disgusting. Yeah. Amanda and I recently watched the Disney Ruby Bridges movie from 1998. That was such a good find. I know. And we both cried during it. Like, people are just downright evil sometimes. We watched it with my girls, who are eight and three, and explained to them what was happening. And they both were upset that people were treating Ruby poorly just because she had a different color skin. And that's proof that racism (laughs) is taught. Like, period. (laughs) What are you laughing at? That night. Your three-year-old. Sissy, don't yeah. be mean to people. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Like, gonna, she's not baby. Right. Like, she was Cause like. Because we paused the movie and I was like explaining to them. Right. And I was getting upset. That because, was such a good. Yeah. Like I'm pissed that I just found it. It was a 1998 yeah. film. Right. But yeah, Liv's like, yes, yeah, Sissy, you don't be mean to people. You don't do. I'm like, I'm not saying Charlotte's doing that, baby. <laughs> but like if my age. She's such a little I know. But, like, if my eight- and three-year-old daughters can understand Mm -hmm. that we're all the same regardless of our skin color, like, grown-ass adults should be able to do the same. And when I say we're all the same, I know we're, like, different, but, like, we need to appreciate, like, each other's differences. yeah, we're not going to—the whole I don't see color, that's That's problematic. Yeah. Yeah. But I digress. Jim Jones seemed to mean well. His main goal was to integrate society, all races together. That's kind of his mantra. Jim started in Indianapolis by targeting small mom-and-pop type restaurants. This is going to piss you off. These restaurants didn't always blatantly turn black would-be patrons away for the color of their skin. Instead, when black people would request a table, they'd often be told that reservations were required even if half of the restaurant had empty tables. Wow. When they asked to make a reservation, they were often told, oh, all of our tables are booked already. That's disgusting. (laughs) So Jim set out to right this wrong in society. Jim and Marceline started bringing black friends to restaurants where they had eaten before by themselves without any issues. Mm -hmm. As expected, the Joneses and their guests were informed that reservations were required, to which the Joneses typically replied, that was never the case before. And if there wasn't an available table, they'd be happy to wait to be seated. 
Sometimes they would eventually be seated, although when they were, the service and the food they received was usually horrendous. Oh, wow. The rest of the time, the Joneses and their black friends would remain standing waiting for a table until right before closing. Either way, Jones would return the next day, this time alone, and ask to speak to the owner. If he was told the owner wasn't available, he would continue to return until he was. Then Jim would turn on the charm and kindly and calmly ask the owner to accept African-American patrons and give them the same service and food that whites get. He would always get rejected the first time and told to mind his own business. But Jim was determined, and he just kept coming back. His next strategy was to try to relate to the business owners. He'd tell them about how he grew up poor and that he understands how hard it is to open a business, but especially to keep it running. He explained to the owners that he wasn't trying to be radical. He was only trying to give the restaurants more business. If owners still refused, Jones would return a third time, this time with black and white prospective diners to protest, peacefully of course. They would simply stand outside and ask the white diners to boycott the restaurant until it agreed to serve African Americans too. But that was the extent of the protesting. When the first few owners agreed to Jones's request, he rewarded these owners by bringing black people's temple members to dine at the restaurant, generating lots of new customers and business for the restaurant. Additionally, the meals would be paid for out of the People's Temple funds. That way, People's Temple members who normally couldn't afford to dine out had the chance to. Jones did more to promote those restaurants whose owners agreed to his requests. The People's Temple would regularly send out flyers and newsletters to congregants announcing upcoming gatherings and events. Jones started advertising the restaurants that had agreed to integrate and urged parishioners to dine there. Pretty soon, word began to spread around Indianapolis that if you cooperated with Jim Jones, he and his congregation would become some of the best friends business owners could hope to have. So like I said, he was working to integrate it and like integrate like restaurants and stuff. Mm -hmm. But I don't know. I just feel like he was pretty like duplicitous. He's, you know, like he has Mm -hmm. like ulterior motives. Jim never missed an opportunity to further his goal of desegregation. For example, in the fall of 1961, Jim was rushed to an Indianapolis hospital with extreme abdominal pain. Upon arrival, Jones was admitted to a wing of the hospital reserved for whites only. Jones was steadfast in his beliefs, even in the face of excruciating pain, and demanded that he would only remain if the hospital was immediately integrated. Jones's personal physician, who was African-American, also arrived, which upset the hospital. But still, Jones refused to be treated until he witnessed himself that the hospital was actively integrating the wings of the hospital. He even went around and spoke to several black patients who assured him that they had been moved to rooms in previously all white wings. Only then would Jones allow himself to be treated. He was diagnosed with bleeding stomach ulcers. So, like, it definitely seems like he was making a difference. But why? Like, he was such a fucking shitty person. Like, what? Right. Like I said, I feel like... You don't have an answer for that? No, I feel like he maybe started out, like, trying to do good, and then I think the power just kind of got to his head. So, throughout 1961, Jim Jones worked tirelessly to spread his gospel of integration. He often was up before the sun rose and worked late into the night. Jim Jones expected a lot of his congregation. Members of the People's Temple were required to attend every Sunday service, which could sometimes last hours. Members were also required to attend People's Temple extracurricular activities and put in volunteer hours at church social services groups. 
The members of People's Temple were expected to practice socialist principles in every aspect of their lives. No arrogance, no obsession with material possessions. Jim instructed his followers to watch each other and report any transgressions back to him. Jones would then hold corrective fellowship sessions where members would stand before their peers and basically be berated for what they had done, quote-unquote, wrong. But according to Jones, there was always something members could be doing better. These corrective fellowship sessions became too much, and some people stopped attending People's Temple. But for Jones, this was unacceptable. According to The Road to Jonestown, quote, it was God's will that they remain a part of the congregation, end quote. In an effort to convince a member to return, Jones sent Earl Jackson a handwritten letter. And I think it was on, like, People's Temple stationery. He said, quote, My beloved brother in Christ, concern for you kept me up praying the entire night. I'm going to speak sincerely and frankly. God sent you to People's Temple, and you must not release yourself. I know that there are things about the message that you may not see, but it is God. As long as we love Christ, we have unity and understanding to compensate for all the little things you and I might disagree on. Earl, you will be making a serious mistake if you leave our temple that God has ordained and declared for you to be a part of. Don't go out to see the proof of what I just said. Hear me as a voice crying to you from the depths of love and fondness for you. Stand still and see the salvation of our Lord. Don't go back on the light. I know you wouldn't intentionally, but if you leave the place that Christ has sent you, in much sorrow and heartache will be the result. God impressed my mind strongly in every prayer in the early hours before dawn that you would be making a terrible mistake to leave. Please hear my counsel, which I give with a heart full of love for you. Yours and him, Pastor James Jones. P.S. I called last night, but you were asleep. I'll be in contact by person or phone with you soon. My prayers and love go out for you. I don't like that. That's a lot. That's desperate. Yeah. So, like, was he more because it was, like, strength in numbers or, like... Yeah. Well, and some of them, like, had seen too much. Because I haven't even touched on the fucked up shit that was well, going fuck. on. Well, fuck. I don't even think I will till maybe the second episode is when I really get into, like, the really fucked up shit. I know you hate me. One of the biggest things that attracted followers to Jim Jones was his ability to perform spirit healings. He started performing these healings in front of his congregations, and people bought into this bullshit hook, line, and sinker. Oh, this is—I already told this story when he dressed, He had his secretary dress up as, like, the disabled wheelchair-bound woman. Yeah. And he singled her out, asked her what her affliction was, and then commanded, commanded her to stand up in God's name. And she stood up. Then he commanded her to walk, and wouldn't you know it— she was walking. Sky Daddy did that. Before long, this disabled woman was literally running up and down the aisles of the church. Naturally, the congregation lost its ever-loving mind. And just like that, Jim had them. His congregation fully believed he was healing people and performing miracles. Unfortunately, it would be years before his followers realized that Jim Jones was less of a preacher and more of a con man. Stephen Jones told Truth and Lies. Uh, That's the son. Yeah. Holy fuck, okay. He lives. He lives. I'll tell no, you. No, but you're like, Stephen Jones told, I'm like, wait, he told who? Yeah, recently. And what? what he said? The show that I, it was like, uh, Truth and Lies, Paradise Lost, Jonestown. Mm-hmm. He said, quote, I think dad always knew he was a fraud, and what people seem to think he was is not who he was, end quote. So, in what I felt was a blatant example of the absolute fraud Jim Jones was, he gave an interview in September of 1977, so like a little le- a little more than a year before this all went down. 
as part of what he hoped would one day be a memoir. In this interview, shut the fuck, Jim, you read it? No. Oh, in this interview, the, 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 the memoir. memoir like, I mean, what he hoped would be a memoir. Mm-hmm. Jesus. In this interview, Jim candidly told the interviewer that he never actually believed in God. Instead, Jim claimed he used religion as a way to infiltrate the church and gain followers for his ultimate goal, turning Christians to socialism. Again, what the fuck? <laughs> like, I shouldn't be surprised because he's a horrible human being, but like, what the fuck? Like, I just right. don't, like, you're manipulating people, like I said, because people want to believe in something. Mm-hmm. I don't know. Jim Jones originally created the People's Temple in the 50s and 60s as a vehicle for social change. Jim firmly believed that all races should be equal. This was during a time before the Civil Rights Act when white people and black people often weren't intermingled. Oftentimes, it was illegal for whites and blacks to commingle. Jim faced harsh backlash for this belief. Jim and his followers had their homes regularly vandalized and their lives threatened due to Jim's stance on integration. This constant harassment, coupled with the threat of nuclear war, would eventually lead Jones to move People's Temple out of Indiana. This is where it gets crazy. Towards the end of October 1961, Jones began claiming to People's Temple associate pastors that he had a terrible prophetic vision that America would soon be under nuclear attack and Indianapolis and everyone living there would be completely annihilated. According to the book, The Road to Jonestown, Jim Jones elaborated on this vision and told his followers, quote, the attack presumably by the Soviets, would target several major American cities, including Chicago. Indianapolis would be leveled by fallout from the Chicago blast. It would come on the 16th of some month, which Jones believed, but could not be certain, was September. He also didn't know what year, but the time would be 3.09, either a.m. or p.m. The vision hadn't specified, end quote. That's a quote from the book. What? He just pulled shit out of his ass. Mm-hmm. So, for the safety of its members, the People's Temple had to relocate somewhere far from the potential nuclear targets. Jones appointed pastors to serve in his absence as he set off to find a new location for the People's Temple. Jim Jones took several trips scouting for a new location for the People's Temple. He traveled to British Guiana on the coast of South America. Quick note, that would eventually become Guyana in 1966. Then he traveled to Hawaii, but neither of these locations panned out at the time. So Jim returned to Indianapolis with his family for a short time before taking his wife and kids and moving to Brazil to scout the country as a possible location for the People's Temple. Originally, the Joneses settled in Belo Horizonte, but Jim Jones found it difficult to recruit any members to his church because he didn't speak Portuguese and had no following here like he did back in Indianapolis. In early 1963, the Joneses moved to Rio de Janeiro, where Jim was hired to teach English at a local American school. Jim and Marceline spent the time Jim wasn't teaching, volunteering in Rio's orphanages and ministering to the city's poor. Jim tried to raise money for the orphanages without much success, likely due to not having any influence in Brazil. Buckle up. Don't read. Don't read ahead. But I listen. won't. I usually don't. Yeah. Jim Jones later recounted a story of the way he raised money for an orphanage. According to Jones, the wife of a prominent diplomat in Rio took notice of Jones and became attracted to him. 
As Jones tells it, the diplomat's wife offered to donate $5,000 to the orphanage if Jones would have sex with her. Jones claimed this was not the first time he had been propositioned this way, but he had always declined. But this time was different. He would be doing it in order to feed and clothe poor or Shut the fuck up. <laughs> Jones approached Marceline and asked her permission to sleep with this woman. She agreed that he should. Jones told his congregation, quote, because he was an exceptional lover, the diplomat's wife enjoyed considerable physical ecstasy, end quote. Don't we fucking all. I hate this man. <laughs> the diplomat's wife held up her end of the bargain and donated the money to the orphanage. According to the road to Jonestown, the lesson for Jones's followers was that an honorable end justified whatever morally questionable means were necessary to achieve it. I don't know about you, but a pastor essentially discussing prostitution during a sermon makes me hella uncomfortable. Like, what? That's right up there with the Catholic priest uh, raping little boys. Right. Like, what the fuck? After two years in Brazil, Jones finally accepted that establishing a people's temple there wasn't likely to happen. So he and his family returned to Indianapolis yet again. When Jones returned from Brazil, the people's temple he came back to was not the same people's temple he left. Many followers had chosen to leave the church in Jones's absence. Jones ended up having to move the temple to a smaller building. In order to try and gain more followers and build up his congregation again, Jones returned to the regional revival circuit where he resumed his quote-unquote healings and prophecies. But Jones's sermon started taking on a different tone, where he once vowed and inspired his congregation by preaching from the Bible and speaking of God's love. Jim now talked about socialism in his sermons way more but he made sure not to specifically call it socialism Mm -hmm. he took it a step further and began slandering the bible in his sermons he told the congregation it was quote the root of our problems today racism is taught in it oppression is taught in it end quote this turned a large portion of the congregation away from him but jim didn't stop at putting the bible down jim now dismissed the concept of a sky god sky daddy (laughs) (laughs) who would promise his followers eternal life in exchange for belief in him, yet ignored the sick and the suffering as Jones... <laughs> as Jones preached, the real Christ or God had the ability to choose a host body, becoming an earth God who could bestow immediate blessings on the living. In a sermon in 1975, Jones declared, quote, The mind that was in Christ Jesus is in me now. As a man thinketh in his heart, so is he. If you think you see a man, a man I am. But if you think you see God, God oh, is here. No. <laughs> what matters is who do you say I am? Jim began to really believe he was Christ on earth. Jesus. Walk. <laughs> I'm going to hell. That man literally said he was Jesus. Uh-uh. So. I'm dead. I fucking hate myself. Huh? I hate me. You hate him? I hate me. No. (laughs) After all of the vandalism, intimidation, and threats, Jim felt he wasn't welcome in Indiana anymore. Jim began scouting out locations in California. Listen to this. According to the road to Jonestown, Jim said the West Coast was, quote, where real social church ministries are needed. In California, there would be no limits, end quote. No limits, soldier. (laughs) 
Allegedly, Jim chose Redwood Valley, California because it was listed by the January 1962 Esquire magazine as one of the nine places you want to be in the event of a nuclear holocaust. You know, I'm not even mad at it. You know why? Because I am a sucker for those fucking articles. Those like, lists? Yes. yes. <laughs> like, I know that seems really random, but one of the things you have to understand about Jim is that in addition to being an advocate for segregation and treating everyone equally and wanting to bring about socialism, he was also somewhat obsessed with the apocalypse, like the <laughs> nuclear war. And, wow. Well, I mean, a lot of people were in the 60s. But in like having a place for himself and his followers to shelter in the event the apocalypse started. Right. Jim Jones, the original doomsday prepper. <laughs> Shut the fuck up. <laughs> On one of many scouting trips Jones made to California, he and two of his associate pastors overheard a conversation between some men and women at a nearby table in the restaurant of Ukiah's Palace Hotel. Which is, Ukiah is like near Redwood Valley, California. These people were board members of Christ Church of the Golden Rule, which was a Ukiah-based social gospel group that had broken away from a larger organization. Golden Rule settled on 16,000 acres in the hills above Ukiah, near Redwood Valley. Jones and his associate pastors introduced themselves and started up a conversation. Which, uh-uh. Uh-uh. If somebody came up to me and I was having a conversation and they tried to introduce themselves and start talking to me, I'd be like, you better get the fuck. Get away from me. Don't talk to me. Don't look at me. Don't think about me. Just go away. It's my face. It's my your face? face says everything. Right. Like, I genuinely need Botox. Yesterday, I was screening resumes. I was reading like this, and I was like, I got to stop making that face. Like, squ- like, not squinting because I can't see, but squinting because I'm like, what the fuck did this person put on their resume? Right. And I'm like, dude, you're a fucking housekeeper. You're not a welder. <laughs> I swear to you, bitch, I make that face all day, and I'm like, I've got to get Botox. Mm-mm. So, yeah. Somebody walks up to me and says, oh, shit. I I will probably bite my tongue very well. Nobody will ever walk up to you. Why? Because of your face. Oh, no, they will. They Oh, God, they fucking will. Yeah, Thomas. Let me tell you what. (laughs) I wore jean shorts to the store the other day Mm -hmm. to go grocery shopping. Never again. Why? People just fucking, hey, how you doing? Sir, I mean, I'm picking up frozen vegetables. What the fuck do you mean how am I doing? <laughs> I don't, you know what? Just don't talk I to me. an invisibility cloak. Yes. I Bruh. Like, don't look at my booty. Bruh. Imagine if that was like a real thing. And, and you'd, you, never fucking, you'd never find me. What? And you wait. No, but you would just. Me and Luna be up in the dead, bitch. But you would just see a whole, the buggy moving and putting shit in the buggy. Oh, God. That's funny. Anyway, back to this. Eventually, the Golden Rule Board invited the men to come and visit their community. After some discussion and compromise, the Golden Rule Board decided that if Jones brought his congregation out to Ukiah, they would be allowed to worship on the Golden Rule settlement as their own separate faith-based group. If temple members eventually proved they were compatible with the Golden Rule members, they may consider a merger. So it was set. Jones would move the People's Temple to California. Jones just had to convince enough of his members to make the move with him. Jones promised followers that their lives would be so much better in California. 
He promised a community where everyone worked together to achieve the kind of equality that would inspire the rest of the world. He promised elderly members suffering from Indiana's harsh cold winters and hot summers that Ukiah had a, quote, Eden-like climate. Basically, whatever someone wanted to change their lives, Jones promised that they would find exactly that in California. Oh, my God. So, in the early summer of 1965, Jim preached a final sermon at the People's Temple in Indianapolis, where he told followers that he and his people were traveling to California to escape religious persecution. After the services, Jim and between 90 and 150 of his followers left Indiana and migrated approximately 2,300 miles to Ukiah, California via a caravan. Jesus. Jim was hopeful that the people in California would be more accepting of his beliefs and mission than the people in Indiana had been. However, Jim Jones was not prepared for the blatant racism that existed in the sleepy little town he brought his mostly black congregation to. Doing the Lord's work. Ukiah and Redwood Valley are small, relatively remote areas and originally seemed like the haven Jones had promised his followers. Jones and his temple arrived in California and deposited $100,000 in a local bank. Despite having this nest egg, members of the People's Temple were expected to donate every spare dollar after they found work. Eager to set an example for the congregation, Jim and his family quickly found jobs. Jim Jones took a job teaching junior high and high school civics and American history. Imagine being those kids. Jim Jones was your teacher. Bitch. Mm -hmm. Imagine having a podcast back then when (laughs) Jim Jones was your teacher. Right. Marceline became an inspector of hospitals and nursing homes for the state of California because she was a nurse. And Jim's mother, Lynetta, took a job with the Red Cross. In July 1965, Jones filed Articles of Incorporation on behalf of People's Temple of the Disciples of Christ in California. A few months later, the People's Temple was recognized as a nonprofit by California's Franchise Tax Board, which granted them the coveted tax-exempt status. Ukiah and its surrounding communities were made up of around 15,000 people, mostly working-class whites, who moved far away from urban areas intentionally. Racism was alive and well in Ukiah. No one in town wanted to live next to black people. Jim Jones rented houses around Ukiah and placed his followers in them, both white and black. This angered the racist members of Ukiah who were used to only having white people in the community. According to The Road to Jonestown, quote, Temple children were ignored by classmates. No one invited them home to play or to birthday or teen dance parties. Their parents were served in local shops and cafes with stony, minimal courtesy, end quote. Temple members soon nicknamed their new home Redneck Valley. Now, while that name is hysterical, the fact that racist people live there is, like, not great. Mm -hmm. As is the fact that we're still dealing with racism 57 fucking years later. Like what? So this is where where I'm going to leave you for part one. In part two, we'll pick up with Jim Jones's big push to recruit more members into his quote-unquote church in California. So what do you think so far? That's a lot of fucking information. Like, it's still, I know it's not the tip of the iceberg. Yeah, oh no, yeah. This was like a background. Like, he hasn't even started acting. Like, he's low-key a scumbag. yeah. But he's not a blatant scumbag yet. Right. Like, he hasn't started, like, 
the like the hor- horrific shit yet. Yeah. Is it an episode? Uh, I think the next episode is when I'll start talking about like some of the fucked up shit. Yeah. Wow. So yeah. Um, also, I know we release episodes every two weeks, but I don't want you guys to have to wait. So I'm going to release, since it's going to be four parts, y'all will get one every Wednesday in August. And I know that you're going to obsessively stalk the number of downloads because ideally they should all be the same number. Remember the other? Right. I never, I never understood that. Sometimes like if we do multiple parters. Yeah. Um. <clears throat> Sorry. They never match up. Yeah, like or the, part, part two, two has more, more than yeah. part one. That makes no whatever. sense to me, but whatever. So yeah, um, every Wednesday in August you'll get an episode. Um, but yeah. Yep. So that's part one <laughs> of four. Jim Jones and the People's Temple Cult. Um, as usual. Thanks for listening. If you like if you loved today's episode, which I know you did, um, please rate and review us. Yep. Um, if you're happy we're back, rate and review us. Yeah. Send us, us your suggestions. love. Yeah, send us your suggestions. Keep reading a few of the nice reviews um, if we get them. Mm-hmm. And we haven't gotten one in a while. No, because we haven't recorded in a while. But yeah. also, leave us a bad review. I don't give a fuck. <laughs> I really don't give a fuck. And I'll fucking make fun of you. Yeah. We, yeah. It's hilarious because you think I give a fuck. Mm-hmm. Anyways, um, right, follow us y'all. on Instagram, homegirlspod. I'm sorry, Homicide Homegirls, uh, Facebook, you know. Y'all know where. Just Yeah, Ariel fucked our Facebook page up, so we got to figure that out. Oh, yeah. Uh, and Twitter, at homegirlspod. If you want to suggest an episode, you know where the fuck find us. Yep. Or email us. Home, is it? What is send it? us a fucking carrier pigeon. <laughs> you know the deal. Yeah. So All right, see y'all next time. See y'all in part two. Bye. Bye.